Hey everyone, this is Graham from Guru Focus. If you haven't met me already, I run our value investing live series on YouTube. The podcast you're about to listen to was originally recorded live in front of an audience, so our guests may make references to charts and PowerPoint slides that you won't be able to see here. If you want to check out their full presentation, including those slides, or join our next live stream, click on the link down in the description. Now back to the podcast. Welcome everyone to Value Investing Live. I'm pleased to welcome our guest today, Jim Rommel, founder and president of Rommel Asset Management, which he founded in 1998. As always, for those of you out in the audience, please feel free to post your questions and comments in the chat section throughout the presentation, but do keep in mind we are going to hold those until the question A section at the end. Without any further ado, I'm going to hand things over to Jim. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. Thank you, Sydney, and thank you to Guru Focus for uh, inviting me. Um, I'm going to break down uh, the talk today uh, a little bit on my background. Uh, we'll spend some time talking about our philosophy and, and process at Romel Asset Management. We will um, I'll highlight a couple ideas to kind of illustrate that uh, that process and give a couple of general comments. Uh, on kind of overall market opportunity, although it's not something that we focus on. We're not macro investors. We're very company-specific uh, fundamental investors. But we'll touch upon it and um, and then open it up for uh, Q&A. Um, I guess just a little bit on my background, I, I actually think it's important um, because I, I think people are gravitate toward investment strategies that ultimately lie in their character their character ultimately being um, really a big function of kind of where they came from, uh, kind of childhood experiences. I grew up in Detroit uh, in a working class block. Uh, most of my friends' parents, uh, fathers worked in the, uh, the plants. And uh, I was that, kind of that kid that was, uh, you know, up and down the block with the uh, uh, shovel or a lawnmower, just like uh, probably many of the people on this, uh, this call today. And so I was always a, uh, a hustler. I was kind of that kid, uh, paper routes and, and all that stuff. And uh, 60 years later uh, this year, uh, I, I kind of still feel like I'm, I'm still hustling and, and love it. My parents divorced when I was young, and I think that uh, was very informative for me. It was, uh, it was a loss at an early age, and I think it contributed greatly to the deep value investment style that I have practiced for my entire career. I think value investors, deep value investors in particular, are um, risk averse. I think we're looking for downside protection. I think we are focused on not uh, how far uh, something can go up, but really how far something can go down. And I, when I think of a lot of the great value investors that inform me, I see this pattern, uh, beginning with Ben Graham, who lost his father at an early age, uh, had to go to work to help support his family. Uh, Marty Whitman, my immediate mentor, came from a family in which his mother um, was one of uh, um, a, a survivor of the Holocaust, came here before the war and lost um, siblings. So Marty knew loss. Uh, could be same of Walter Schloss and, and Irving Kahn, uh, uh, really um, 
intellectual kind of mentors of mine. So I, I do think there is this, this relationship between value and deep value investors and a, and a sense of uh, understanding something about loss. I think we're, we're risk adverse as a group. I started writing. I, I entered the business as a traditional stockbroker in 1998. Uh, excuse me, 1988. Um, 1988. I opened up um, Romel Asset Management in 1998. In the 90s, I spent time managing money uh, under uh, Raymond James's umbrella, wrote research, and was fortunate enough to having written some research that ended up on my mentor's desk, Marty Whitman. And uh, Marty uh, bought a few um, securities that I suggested and gave me a great amount of confidence that the, the way in which uh, I approach securities analysis and trying to find kind of undiscovered gems um, worked and we could do it. And to have his seal of approval was a great uh, gift to me. Marty, in fact, when I formed Romalis Management in 1998, uh, uh, agreed to be an advisor to Romel Asset Management and was uh, instrumental in helping get my firm off the ground. Shortly thereafter, 2000, 2001, I got invited into the Wall Street Journal stock picking contest. This was now 20 years ago. Uh, won it two years in a row. And uh, that's when things kind of changed for me. And, we were able to raise capital, and here we are 20 years later. So process. Um, we look for securities that we like to say are out of favor, overlooked, and misunderstood. Uh, we think it's very hard to add value investing in securities that are widely followed, uh, in which the metrics that you're analyzing are pretty straightforward, which the business is fairly easy to understand and the operating metrics are fairly easy to understand. Basically, accounting is a commodity and uh, can be easily duplicated. And so adding investment edge uh, through accounting, we think is hard. Now, to be clear, we actually have a first-rate accountant on our staff, Tom Gandelfo. It's a public company CFO. Uh, was a public company CFO, and um, it's absolutely critical uh, to have that talent inside the shop, and, and Tom provides that. But at the end of the day, the investment edge for us comes from an information edge that is most often found in smaller microcap securities that are not lot widely followed. Uh, often with very little or no sell side research, that we can really add value by um, really shaking the trees in the industry of suppliers, competitors, uh, customers. Uh, that's what we really, really like to do. Um, we are not interested in finding great businesses. We are not interested in looking for compounders. Um, there are many, many people who do that. Um, it seems to me that that is a type of investing that lends itself to indexing. There are obviously uh, a number of people who do it and do it well and have for a long time. 
It's not what we do. The network we use, I think, is very important. Um, I rarely invest in something that we do not have what I call an information edge in terms of really understanding what's happening dynamically in that industry, what's happening competitively, uh, how cohesive is the management team, how aligned is the board. Um, and then ultimately, we ask ourselves, would we take this company private? And um, uh, that is ultimately our North Star, would we take this private? So with that, I'm going to, um, I'm going to show a couple slides to kind of walk through this and hopefully uh, some of this will, will make more sense with, um, with what I've just said. So I'm going to uh, okay. Sydney, can you see that? Okay, nope, no problem. So um, this is just a, a brief executive summary. Um, and I'll just go through these bullets, you know, quickly. We're opportunistic. So right now, we hold about 40% of our portfolio in cash, not because we're trying to time the market, but because we are looking at a lot of things and haven't found sufficient number of investments that we would take private in a heartbeat. In other words, take private, meaning we would buy the entire company, where the return would be completely a function of the cash flows coming out of that company and or the opportunity to monetize uh, assets inside the company. Uh, we have just recently, we look at this business as one of planting and harvesting. We have done a, uh, uh, a lot of harvesting recently, given the number of things that have worked out. So cash levels are high. So we do not feel compelled to stay invested. We will invest to the extent we, we have a great idea. As I mentioned earlier, micro small cap focus. We think those are uh, mispricing is absolutely essential to add value. Mispricing happens in environments where there are fewer players. Uh, information is not widely um, available as it is on larger situations. That's where we swim. We, as a result of the amount of work we do on companies, our, our, um, our focus is on really high conviction ideas. We uh, typically look to invest, um, you know, five to eight percent positions. Um, so we'll take a seven or eight percent position. We are looking to maybe own 15 investments. Uh, not 50. Um, as I mentioned, uh, we're always looking to be where the herd is not. Um, that doesn't mean there's value there. It just means in our belief that the, the, the odds of finding value are much greater than being in heavy uh, trafficked areas. Um, primary consideration for each holding always would we take it private heartbeat. We're comfortable owning sizable positions in companies. We currently have a number of positions where we are, you know, the one of the top three or four largest shareholders. Um, again, touched upon this a moment ago. Uh, I think it's really important, particularly for younger investors who uh, might be on this call, uh, really build up a network, uh, building relationships and sustaining them over time. Uh, to our business has been key. 
uh, every business that you're showing up to analyze, we are generalists and we need to, we need to really kind of have uh, people willing to, uh, that, that are kind of um, helping understand a particular industry. So we have built and maintained what I think is a very sizable, deep, wide uh, network of industry contacts. Uh, a lot is not talked about behavioral edge, uh, temperamental, emotional sturdiness, I would say. Uh, there are many, many people I've met in this industry over the years who uh, have far more IQ points than I do. I think one of the things that I've been able to do is to manage risk, manage my own emotions, be able to um, um, basically always uh, kind of stay in the game and not kind of get knocked off. One of the ways in which we do that and manage particularly the volatility that comes with microcap investing is we, we overwhelmingly stick to companies with very strong balance sheets. And the, the reason is, is pretty simple. With a strong balance sheet, we've got time. And one of the real uh, challenges for an investor is uh, being under the gun of having a leverage balance sheet, leverage capital structure in which something has to happen within a particular time period. A well-capitalized business, a cash-rich business has time. And so we have, um, we have basically very long-dated options. Secondly, with a well-capitalized company, we can average down uh, aggressively and confidently because of the math. If you have a $200 million cap company with, say, $100 million in cash and no debt, and that stock drops 25%, you're effectively buying the business for a 50% discount, a uh, 50% um, discount to the 25% the, the, the stock price because, of course, the $100 million in cash is, is standing still, and the 25% drop is you, you cut off $50 million from the market cap or 50%. Uh, million or 50% of the uh, the enterprise value. So um, we're able to average down and average down aggressively, uh, typically and confidently because of the types of capital structures um, we, um, we gravitate toward. A um, couple of the highlights of things we're looking for, uh, assets. So we look for interesting assets, unique assets, assets that often are not yet really generating uh, certainly gap earnings. Um, we want companies typically that own interesting assets that are at least breaking even cash-wise, or, or at least we see a, um, um, an end in sight. Uh, to cash burn. We don't want to be holding ice cubes, um, even if they are cash rich. Uh, a bad business will rip through a strong balance sheet. Uh, it just takes certainly a matter of time. So uh, very uh, unique, interesting assets. We'll talk about one in particular uh, in a moment when I highlight the um, um, largest holding right now, GSI technology. Balance sheet strength I mentioned. Uh, we look for 
very disciplined capital allocators. We spend we we spend time trying to get to know management, uh, the board composition, the relationship between the board and management. Uh, we really like investment redundancy, and investment redundancy uh, simply is having multiple shots on goal. So we like to have situations where uh, there are multiple ways to win. One of our biggest holdings over the past several years was. Um, Rosetta Stone, which got bought out last year. When we showed up, uh, they had a consumer language business, an enterprise language business, and they had a growing nascent, although completely unrecognized, uh, language learning software business called Lexia and, and, and a, um, a net cash balance sheet. And so our opportunities to win was the uh, rationalization of consumer business, the further penetration of the enterprise business, but at all times it was actually anchored in something that really wasn't appreciated, Lexia Learning, which was growing at over 20% a year, 95% retention rates, um, but again, multiple ways to win. And then uh, no matter how much we like a situation, we do a conservative evaluation of its, uh, of its assets, of its overall business, and we want a discount. And our discount has to be, you know, minimum uh, 35%, typically 50. And those are the situations we wait for. And again, going back to kind of market cap orientation, you just really don't find, you know, 50% discounts in widely trafficked ideas where there are, you know, lots of analysts, uh, lots of investors circling that security. And so the return in those situations, in, in our view, is really most dependent upon an overall rise in the market, not specific company events. Um, I think that's really not uh, too important. I, I just want to highlight one last page. Yeah. Uh, key influencers. I think this is really important. I think it's important for investors to have sources of inspiration. We all we all stand on the, the shoulders of uh, of our um, heroes, so to speak. Investment wise, uh, these are mine. Uh, Marty Whitman. You know, light bulb went off for me when I read Marty. You know, you value a company independent of the market. Uh, you give up ROE for um, for safety, goes back to the deep value uh, investing mantra uh, that that safety is 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 more important than ROE for for those of us who um, uh, maybe have been touched by loss in a way. Uh, Walter Schloss, uh, you know, buy assets at a discount instead of buying earnings. Earnings can change quickly. Um, also, I, I think Schloss makes a very good point. You got to be comfortable with who you are. Your investment strategy is really an expression of your own character, uh, your own temperament, and there needs to be alignment. Uh, Irving Kahn, um, favorite companies that have near-term, weak, or no earnings. Uh, as we all know, people react typically in herds. Uh, disappointments, particularly in earnings of growth companies can be great, terrific places to look for value as a lot of growth investors suddenly exit. Um, and then Seth, Seth Klarman, um, I'm sure you all, all know, 
you know, a fabulous margin of safety investor. The other thing, and particularly in light of the current market, that I would note with, uh, with, with Seth Klarman is his idea that your opportunity set is not just what's in front of you today. The opportunity set today isn't stocks, bonds, real estate, international stocks. Your opportunity set should also include what may and is likely to become available tomorrow. So as our fund sits on 40% cash right now, we're not looking at what is the, most, the, the, most, the best relative uh, place to put that money. Uh, our opportunity set includes thinking about what might be available tomorrow. Um, so I'm going to uh, move to two uh, ideas. I'll make some market comments, and then we can um, then we can we can take some Q and A. So um, our top holding is a company called GSI Technologies. Um, you can see this, Sydney. Yes. Okay. Yes, so very quickly, um, and, and this you can find on our uh, website, uh, romelasset.com under year end 2020 letter. Um, uh, without going into it, it's a chip company. It has um, a, a legacy. So very common for, for our investing strategy is, um, we'll get into the numbers very briefly here uh, at a high level, but GSI has a, um, uh, a debt-free balance sheet. It's got over 60 million in cash, a market cap of about 180 million or so million dollars. So it's cash rich. Has a legacy chip business, a legacy SRAM chip business that we, we value modestly. And we take that value uh, plus the cash and the balance sheet, they own their headquarters, we subtract that out of the market cap and we get a residual value, which is what we're paying for what we think is the most exciting asset inside the company. And that's its new Gemini um, platform of chips. And Gemini is, um, it is a AI chip focused on inference, not training. And the only thing I'll say, which is again in this um, presentation, the link to it is in the presentation, which again can be found on our website or the, the um, year-end uh, 2020 letter, is uh, the the Israelis' version of our DARPA. It's called Moffat, um, the, the basically private equity arm of their defense department that looks to curate emerging technologies through crowdsourcing uh, technology through putting out contests. Uh, in January, GSI won a Moffitt challenge that was uh, a software challenge to accurately determine and distinguish between humans and animals from radar signals. And so you see an object in the distance, 100 yards away, is it a human, is it an animal, is it a bear, is it a cat? Um, GSI won that contest. There were over a thousand entries. 
Our understanding is that Microsoft, Amazon, and NVIDIA all uh, made submissions to that contract, albeit under different uh, names that uh, are not recognizable. So we think this Gemini chip, which has just come out onto the market, is um, very powerful. They've got uh, an emerging relationship with the Weissman Institute in Israel. Uh, the purposes for their inference chip really applies to uh, drug development, uh, to facial recognition, and to search. And um, in the past three years, non-revenue producing chips that are in this ecosystem, uh, Intel bought Nirvana for $400 million, again, pre-revenue. Uh, Intel bought um, Habana Systems last year for $2 billion. Again, basically pre-revenue. Going to um, um, uh, Khan's approach to look at assets, not just earnings, we think there's a great asset in here that is not yet really producing earnings, but here's what we're paying for it. Uh, if you look in this, this, um, this analysis, the market cap on this company is $190 million right now. It, basically $7 a share. Um, actually, the, uh, the, the cash is closer to $60 million. Um, and let's see here. And so the, the implied Gemini value is uh, probably effectively about $50 million. It's, it's the cash here is um, this $50 million cash does not include about $12, 13000000 million that are in uh, securities held past a year. Um, so that's what we're uh, paying for this Gemini option that is a uh, software and hardware chip that just recently won a Israeli challenge of AI ability to distinguish between humans and animals. So um, it's a free option, basically a free option in our, in our view. This is the, the source of this chip is uh, well described in this um, this um, write-up that you can again find on our website. I'm going to screen share just one other quick idea that's a bit different. Uh, this is uh, Dundee Precious Metals. Uh, again, you'll see a common theme here, uh, a cash-rich company that is uh, debt-free. I'm not going to... Dundee Precious Metals is a Canadian miner. Uh, they have two uh, very large mines in Bulgaria. The second one, uh, Chelopech, has been producing for several years. The second one just came online about a year ago called the Tepe. And they produce about 300,000 ounces of gold a year. So here, here's the bottom math on it. Uh, at the current price, market cap, uh, a little over a billion dollars, cash of 150 million, uh, no debt. Uh, so you see an enterprise value there of about 932 million. However, they have a portfolio of publicly traded uh, miners. We value that at 50 cents in the dollar. Uh, takes the adjusted enterprise value down to less than 900 million dollars. They also own a smelter. Uh, that they have put over $300 million into in the past several years, which is not reflected on here. And we just kind of put aside because we think it's, 
it's uh, instrumental to the business and, and um, um, the chance of it being sold separately is, is probably unlikely. So last year, Dundee Precious Metals generated over $200 million in free cash flow. Okay. So this year, they will generate about 240 uh, based on same kind of 1700 I mean, assuming same $1,700 per ounce gold price. That free cash flow goes up because they paid off last year a forward contract. Um, so some of their gold went to uh, settle a liability for uh, a forward sale on gold. So, you know, you're, you're talking about a... Uh, you know, basically, at you know, 25% plus free cash flow yield. Now, obvious question is, well, how good is, how long is the cash flow for? According to the company, uh, again, assuming um, $1,700 gold price, given about a 650 uh, all-in cash cost, um, this cash flow profile is good for um, five years. So, Chelapetch, uh, so. If you look at the company's presentation, average mine life is eight years. Uh, Chelapetch is certainly more likely 13. Ade Tepe is probably shorter, but longer than eight. Um, so basically, you get your money back. Again, I'm assuming $1,700 here. In four years, you have $150 million in cash. You've got the smelter. You've got $100 million in public securities. And you have the value that's created from the, the, the uh, growth capex, which is pretty modest, $10 million a year. And at the end of those four years, you still have the, the, the uh, optionality on expanding both Tuppy and Chelapatch, but both of which have many opportunities for reinvestment. So, but the bottom line is here is you have your money back in a few years. Very conservative uh, company, uh, instituted a dividend. Uh, a year ago, now three cents a quarter, paying two percent. Uh, I think they can go to probably thirty percent of free cash flow um, in terms of a dividend. So I think the dividend will be going up. But uh, you know, at, at a ten percent free cash flow yield off of twenty-one cash, look at the bottom there. That's a fourteen-dollar stock price. So again, we are not predicting gold prices here at all. Uh, but if you think about our mantra of downside protection and being most concerned about downside protection versus upside, we're not, we're just basically arbitraging a, a super um, unlevered, super high cash flow generating asset with the optionality of that production in five, six years. Um, uh, additional production will come online and we're basically taking very little risk for that given the, the cash flow profile. Okay. Um, just a couple um, little bit um, general kind of market comments and our opportunity set um, today. We, we don't do macro. Um, we, we think that basically it... Um, it ends up being the average opinion of the average opinion. I'm not a trained economist. And so it's always baffled me that, that people who perhaps have an edge in identifying value as it pertains to individual securities uh, can believe themselves to um, uh, be smarter than um, you know uh, the many economists out there who have um, 
trained in, in macroeconomics. I will say, I know a lot of economists, uh, none of them are really wealthy. Uh, I know a number of investors who really don't know much about economics who are wealthy, which is a real signal, clearly, that bottom-up deep value investing or bottom-up investing, really, for that matter, growth or deep value, is different than economic prognosticating. And um, if it were otherwise, then you'd have a lot of wealthy economists. You don't. Um, so the macroeconomic forecasting really, from what I observe, doesn't really lend itself to um, um, making money in the market. Having said that, to the extent we have a view, it, it goes something like this. Market cap to GDP right now, something Guru focus, uh, focuses on, is right now approaching two times, uh, much higher than it was during the internet bubble, uh, which I think peaked at maybe 160 or 170, so maybe it's 180, 190 right now. Um, it's extraordinarily high. And there are reasons put forth for that. Um, the, the most um, uh, often told is super low interest rates, lower discounting of future cash flows, results in a higher stock. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, I would say, though, that the two things that general market investors are standing in front of are super low interest rates and high multiples. And you know, th those are, in our view, more likely than not to go the other way. So um, I just kind of keep it that simple. Uh, more likely than not, um, rates are in some type of trough. We have no idea when and if, and perhaps they do stay down. Um, you know, Japan's rates have been down for a long time, so I, I don't get too mesmerized by it one way or the other. But um, I do think uh, on a number of overall metrics, whether it's CAPE ratio, market cap to GDP, we're, we're really kind of in unchartered territory. And so that unchartered valuation territory, in order to be sustained, requires unchartered territory in terms of these metrics, i.e. principally interest rates. Um, what I like about our strategy and, and is, is how we, we really don't have to think too much about it because we're looking for very specific situations that are trading at a discount for very specific reasons. Either A, they're really undiscovered and own things that people are unaware of. Uh, they are misunderstood because they are a little bit too hairy and a little too complex to kind of pull apart. And we have the ecosystem and the network to kind of really add an edge in terms of uh, gaining an expertise in, in the, the underlying business. Um, so it, it's so, so company specific, so event driven, really, that we don't um, we, we don't really kind of worry about uh, uh, overall market levels um, on a day to day basis. Um, Anything that is a going concern thesis, though, um, 
you know, has to be heavily discounted uh, for us right now. And um, we, we will, um, you know, although we have 40% cash right now, we can get pretty quickly invested. In fact, in the past um, month, we have found three 5% positions. So that gives a flavor of, of what can happen quickly if we do find things that um, we really like. Um, the last thing I'll kind of say before um, we throw it over to Q&A is uh, talking about incentives. And we always look at the incentives of the management and uh, teams and the boards of the companies we invest in. But we had a reassessment um, of our own incentives uh, last year, which I think we've been greatly benefited by. I had historically kept well over 50% of my own financial net worth in our fund. We, uh, and I determined that while our advisors are often putting maybe five, 7% of their clients' capital in our fund, we were actually not aligned. And I was not aligned. And I was not aligned because we were being too conservative because I had such a disproportionate amount of my net worth in the fund that I think it was causing me to uh, uh, hedge maybe too much, not take as big of positions, and not candidly investing the fund as aggressively as it should be based upon having 5 to 7% pieces of people's capital. And so I made a commitment last year to actually reduce it, disclose it to clients, really uh, understood our advisors. And we committed to, I committed to keeping a third, which is five, six times our average allocation um, from a client. And that has really made a big difference. Um, you know, going back to the concept of loss I talked about early on, you, you have to invest this capital, uh, in our case, this particular fund, in a way that is actually aligned with our clients. And uh, for me to do that, I actually had to reduce my exposure to the fund. And it has been, um, it has been wonderful. Our, our fund uh, in its slipper category is in the uh, one percentile now for the one, three, and five-year periods. It's just under 50% for the 10-year period because we had a um, pickup in 13 and 14 and 15. Um, so interestingly, alignment from a manager's perspective, in my experience, isn't uh, necessarily having the, 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 the most amount of capital in the fund. It's the right amount of capital in the fund given uh, who, who the investors in that fund are. So with that, um, Sydney, I think we're um, ready to take some, some questions. Okay, yes. Thank you so much um, for all that great information. All right, the first question that we have um, today is how do you reduce your average um, cost as you referenced during your discussion on your uh, strategy? Do you have any tips? Yeah, um, good question. So we, we typically don't uh, leg back in average down, if you will, uh, until there's at least a 15% drop. Um, however, um, let's say we have targeted a position to be um, 5%. What we, and, and we like the position. Um, I mean, nothing has really changed except the price. 
what we're really aiming toward is within maybe a 20% uh, drop, let's say you, you buy something at 10 and it's now eight, we're still aiming for that kind of 5%. However, if the discount drops materially, let, let's say 25%, um, then the position size will actually maybe go from 5% to 7%. So again, if, if our analysis hasn't changed, and the stock has dropped 25%, well, you, you, you're basically, your position size is a reflection of the level of discount you have, right? And so um, I would say, you know, a 25% discount would probably take a 5% position to 7%. So that's how we kind of think about it. Short of that, we just keep trying to basically add and to basically kind of bring it back to 5%. All right, perfect. Um, the second question that we have uh, are, what are the catalysts and risks for the two stocks you presented? So GSI Technologies and Dundee Precious Metals. Sure. So uh, again, in both cases, uh, we think it's much easier to, so to speak, see the floor than to kind of uh, see the ceiling. Um, we, we first and foremost uh, don't see a lot of downside because of the capital structures. Having said that, the question. So the, the risk with GSIT would be that they've got this great chip, this Gemini uh, class of chips, this uh, AI uh, associated process processing chip, which as you'll uh, read about if you go to our website and read the write-up is where the, the processing is occurring in the memory. And so um, um, it's this great chip, but GSI is a uh, small company, $200 million market cap, and it's gonna take some time to get that story out and to sell that chip. Now the Israeli win will really help bring attention to it, but you know, it's like uh, the analogy I use, it's like a drug company little biotech that develops a great drug, but really doesn't have the sales force to go out and get it into hospital formularies or to get it into the community. You know, th those, uh, that job is done by, you know, big pharma, Pfizer and Merck and whatnot. So I think ultimately GSI will be purchased because um, I think it's, you know, a heavy lift to create the, um, uh, the sales momentum. So, I would say that the, the, the risk is that, um, you know, revenue, and, and we, by the way, we, we don't expect any big revenue ramp from Gemini this year. Um, you know, it's an SRAM business with the Gemini option. We expect announcements about engagements. Um, we'll expect some wins, but we're not expecting any real revenue ramp this year. That, that will be, I think, in 22. But I think there will be material announcements showing partnerships and design wins and so forth. But the risk there would be that it just it takes uh, longer than um, than expected. Um, I think the SRAM business there, that's their legacy business, is pretty sturdy. In other words, they have indicated while consumer SRAM has been a business in decline, they have developed new end markets for their their legacy SRAM business, which are enterprise, which are really uh, government, defense, and satellite. 
and they've been pretty clear that that business is kind of stable to slightly uh, growing, uh, but at higher gross margins. So I think the SRAM business plus the cash provides uh, a pretty sturdy foundation. With uh, Dundee Precious Metals, I mean, of course, the the um, the biggest risk is uh, you know a dramatic drop in gold prices. But again, all in, I mean, you can do the math. All in cash cost is six fifty. You know, gold right now at seventeen hundred dollars an ounce. You know, roughly three hundred thousand ounces. You know, gold drops two hundred dollars. Two hundred dollars. You know, multiplied by three hundred thousand ounces. That's your your kind of uh, segue or your your, your, um, your beta in terms of cash flow. Um, so, you know, it, again, you know, at a 25% starting off free cash flow yield, you got a lot of room. The, the other thing, in addition to gold prices with a miner is, um, look, these are big mines and, and stuff goes wrong. Um, Dundee precious metals, uh, sadly, uh, fourth quarter last year, uh, had a, um, had an accidental death at uh, one of its mines. Um, really, really sad event and uh, really unusual too because they have a fabulous track record in terms of safety track record. You go to their website, there's, uh, they, they've always spent a tremendous amount of time focusing on safety. Um, but, you know, you can have mine events that, that um, you know, can be uh, material. So I would say, you know, operational um blow-ups, if you will, and the price of gold on EPM. All right. Thanks so much for answering. Yes, that is really sad that they had that terrible accident. Um, let's see. Another uh, audience member is asking, how are you able to forecast the net present value of loss-making microcaps? Um, well, <laughs> we can't really, but here's how we, here's how we try to mitigate you know, I think I understand the question. How, how do we try to mitigate uh, the erosion of value that might come from uh, perennial losses before a company's ready for prime time? And so if you take a look at GSIT, it's really a perfect example. We got introduced to GSIT in 2015 or 16. We started buying shares less than $4 a share. They have generated, albeit a small amount, of cash every year for the past several years while developing the Gemini chip. So they have taken basically cash flow from their legacy SRAM business, kept costs down, reinvested in Gemini, and so you, you don't have a perennial loser. So if you call one of my earlier comments was, we like to identify companies that have multiple um, options, but are not burning cash. So at least the balance sheet is staying still while these investment activities are hopefully creating wealth. So similarly, uh, when we, I mentioned that Rosetta Stone was our largest position um, over the past probably 10 years. During the time we owned it, uh, Rosetta's, uh, we, we started buying it at 7 or $8 a share. They developed Lexia Learning. They repurposed their enterprise uh, language learning software. This is being sold to K-12 and corporations. They did all that 
while basically maintaining uh, roughly $30 million in cash in their balance sheet, kind of cash neutral. But after four years, the company was sold for $30. So basically 4X the stock price. And, but during that time, make no mistake, they had no gap earnings. Uh, but what they did was they grow, grew their subscriber base on Lexia. They rationalized the consumer business. So they, 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 they built wealth. They, they built a, a wealth, um, a greater wealth generating machine um, with basically not generating any gap earnings during that time, but by doing it by growing subscribers in which those subscribers by that, that buyer last year could be uh, discounted uh, to a present value that for that buyer approached $30. So if we do get involved with the company, a, a micro, which is overwhelmingly our cocktail of choice, um, it, sometimes they are burning cash, but we see a recap. We, we see a, um, we just get involved in a situation now where we see a recap that is going to really dramatically reduce the cost of capital. Perfect example, one of our top holdings in the past two years has been Comscore. They've had this $200 million, 12% piece, 12 piece of debt held by Starboard. You know, stock three months ago um, was at $2. You know, it's close to four now simply because they did a recap. They, they found a um, basically preferred investor, cleaned up the balance sheet, and the stock was a double. Um, so I hope that answers the question. Okay, the next question I have um, is, how do you decide if an investment, or determine, I guess, how do you determine if an investment is not working in your portfolio? Um. So we recently had a situation where we basically sold the security for basically the same price we bought it for because um, we, we, we spoke to someone who had um, actually toured the company's operations. And, um, and there was a uh, division of this company that we thought was um, really kind of beginning to um, really kind of uh, uh, was poised to grow. And the feedback we got was um, there were only a handful of employees in one division. Uh, there was some talking with them and the project was uh, much more delayed than um, thought. Um, there was an overall sense of, um, kind of malaise, uh, and it was a very different representation from what I felt we, we got from the company's top management. And so obviously during COVID, we've been unable, uh, to go visit and kick tires as we're accustomed to doing. Um, so this is a situation where, you know, we got a, a piece of feedback back and we could be wrong, by the way, uh, we, we could be over, um, um, valuing this piece of information, but it didn't add up to me. And so we, we just decided to exit. Um, if I can't, if I don't feel good at every moment, I've got a discounted security. I've got something worth substantially more than what I'm owning it. I don't want, to, uh, 
you know, that's just a lesson learned uh, after having done this for over 30 years. Um, um, let's see. Uh, we recently we, we don't we don't see ourselves as activists. We don't go into situations to be active. But last year we did run a full proxy campaign against Enzo Biochem ENZ because we really um, uh, really determined the board management. We're not aligned with shareholders. We're doing um, perennial things to undermine value creation and. Um, uh, you know, so sometimes we will get involved. And in, in Enzo's situation, uh, earlier this week, it was announced that the, um, uh, the chairman is stepping down as CEO. He's staying on the board. Um, so we, we will get involved sometimes. Um, so um, the, the other thing that we will exit a security uh, based on, if we really determine um, and, and we got something wrong up front about the, the kind of people we're involved with. Um, and, and we kind of come to the conclusion they're not really ethical, honest actors. Uh, we will we will typically exit um, because in my experience, um, there's just um, there's more there's more cockroaches there and they'll eventually come out. All right. Um, OK, so let's see my next question is what advice do you have for people who are just getting into their investment journey? Um, wonderful question. I would, uh, going back to a couple of things I touched upon, um, I would focus on self-reflection. I would focus on understanding uh, who you are, where your talents are, uh, uh, are most likely to be realized. Um, so for instance, um, I'm a fairly extroverted person. I've always been fairly comfortable uh, walking up to people and introducing myself. So I've always found it easy to go to trade shows and to introduce myself to um, uh, industry participants. And that's something I kind of really enjoy. Um, I think if that's something you don't like, which is fine, you have to find a way up the hill, so to speak, that is really in line with your own temperament, character, and skills. I, I really don't think anyone should really try to do something that doesn't come relatively natural. Not to say that there's not, you know, clearly room for improvement and room for growth, but I don't think you should be running against your grain. So the first thing I would say is to basically find your grain, um, you know, um, whatever that might be. For me, when I read Marty Whitman, uh, a light bulb went off and it just kind of became my North Star. And um, I think you have to just, I would, I would start there and then be patient. Okay, thanks so much. That is great um, advice, uh, Jim. Um, our final question is, pretty easy. Um, this uh, uh, listener wants to know what uh, your typical time frame, do you have a preference for typical time frame that you want to hold an investment? Sure. So we do not want to hold an investment forever. Um, we are typically um, identifying a trigger, a, a value trigger 
that if we're roughly right, should be occurring within two years. And so, again, going back to an earlier comment, we're not identifying great companies that are compounders that can reinvest capital at great rates, and, and so why ever sell? No, we're, we're looking at uh, really mispriced securities that are standing in front of some type of catalyst be it, you know, GSI getting bought because of its Gemini portfolio, uh, be it DPM's cash flow getting more recognized in the market given how much it's generating. And I, I think maybe one person follows DPM. Um, we're, you know, whether it's Comscore getting um, recapitalized, whether it's Rosetta Stone getting bought out, which took a little bit longer than we thought. Um, and to be clear, we weren't there at the, the final purchase. We did very well, but we weren't there for the final couple innings. Um, so I would say if, if we're roughly right, our investment thesis should be playing out within um, uh, 12 to 24 months. All right. Well, uh, well, Jim, I think that rounds things out for the majority of our uh, questions today. Thank you so much from uh, everyone here at Guru Focus and for, the, uh, for joining us. And thank you for the audience out there for taking the time out of your day um, to join our uh, Value Investing Live. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Sydney. I've enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Value Investing Live. If you haven't joined one of our live streams before, check us out on YouTube and register for the events on gurufocus.com. If it's your first time hearing of us, click the link in the bio for a free seven-day trial of Guru Focus where you can test out all of our great tools and features. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.